0: and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riffraff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today
1: we're talking to Emma Flint, author of The Superb Little Deaths, about writing fiction based on fact, the impact of research and letting your story unfold along the way.
0: delighted to have you with us thank you so much for joining us on the riffraff podcast and um, so your incredible book little deaths kept me completely occupied over the, over the bank holiday weekend i know i tweeted you immediately um, i absolutely loved it so for those thank you. who haven't read it yet please can you tell us a little bit about what it's about
2: sure um hi uh, thank you for having me <laughs> sorry i'm babbling away there um, yeah it's a, it's based on a true story um it's set in suburban queens on the outskirts of new york in the mid-60s before feminism reached uh, the suburbs, I think it's fair to say. My main character, Ruth Malone, wakes up one morning and finds that her two young children have disappeared from their bedroom. That's the basic premise. She immediately becomes the prime suspect in the police investigation, um, basically because of how she looks and how she behaves. So she wears tight clothes, she wears a lot of makeup, she drinks, she's kicked her husband out, she likes sex, and she's not apologetic about it and she just doesn't fit the stereotype of the grieving mother that the police and the media are looking for
1: and how did you hear about the case
2: um i've always read loads of true crime i read about it when i was about 14 or 15 um and i've got hundreds of cases in my mind um i think i think crime is really fascinating true crimes fascinating because it's where you see human beings at their most extreme and under the most amount of pressure. But what really interested me about this case was two things. Firstly, um, Alice herself, Alice Grimmins, who, the, who Ruth Malone is based on. She, um, in real life, was a tiny, uh, petite, sexy, redhead, very striking. And all the photographs that I saw of her, she's surrounded by these big, bulky men in suits Policemen, lawyers, um, her husband. And she just, she looks so fragile but also defiant. And I was kind of obsessed by that image of her. And I wanted to write about the kind of woman that could become um, a suspect like that before the police even knew that they were dead, before they knew the children were dead. Um, But the other thing that interested me about it was when she gave her statement to the police about what she'd done on the evening before the children died, she said that she'd fed them veal and green beans, and that's not what they found in the autopsy. And that question, that discrepancy, really obsessed me. I thought, if she's lying, it's such a weird thing to lie about, because it doesn't get her off the hook, it doesn't give her an alibi, and it's something that can easily be disproved. So I thought, whatever solution I come up with, I have to find out why that didn't fit.
0: Oh it's it's so gripping. It is super cute. Um so this, there's there's been retellings of this case before mm. um like in plays and books and stuff and um so what made you obviously you said that you're really interested in true crime but what kind of made you decide to take on something that had already been retold and um did you have any kind of doubts about doing it or worries about doing <laughs> it or were you just like I've been reading this since I was 14 years old?
2: <laughs> um to be honest I didn't know how many other people had retold it and I think if I had known that when I started, (laughs) I might not have persevered. Um, I didn't read any of the other fictional retellings of the case, because I didn't want to be influenced by other people's opinions. So I read the newspapers, I read books by journalists, I read the non-fiction stuff that I could find, um, and I read the trial transcripts, but I didn't want to read anything fictional. Um, I have read Mary Higgins Clark's book since, um, which was, I don't want to give away the ending of either book, but it, it was an interesting comparison. Um, I think for me, it's just a really, uh, it's a really modern case. And there's lots of things in it that really resonated with me in the way that women are reported on now, especially women who are linked to crimes. So if you look at the way that Amanda Knox was represented in the media or Madeline McCann's mother has been represented in the media, the focus has been on them rather than Amanda's boyfriend or, um, Kate McCann's husband. It's been on how they look, how they behave, Um, in Amanda's case her sexuality, her physicality Uh, I remember reading an article in a tabloid about Kate McCann, I think it was one of the anniversaries of Madeleine's disappearance talking about um, how she'd gone out jogging wearing lip gloss and mascara and I thought well, A, why the hell shouldn't she? And B, what does that what on earth does that have to do with the disappearance of her that daughter? Was in the article. That was that was basically the premise of the article. That is so but
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Well is. that is not a fact that needs to be reported and, and, exactly. so, and if like, she probably knows that people are gonna be trying to take her picture because it's exactly. stored everywhere. Oh my god. I
2: I kind of you know, I think I think this is true of how women are represented in the media generally. I mean, you know I have no interest in the royal family, but like you look at stories about Kate Middleton and Prince William, you get: has she worn this dress before? How much is the dress worth? What's she done to her hair today? How much eye makeup is she wearing? Mm. How much like Princess Diana does she look? Prince William, he's wearing a suit. That's mm. it. That's all we're told. That's all we see.
1: There's also something about mothers who commit crimes mm. as well. I think Definitely. there's something. That's, you know, it's 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 really hard for people to believe that a mother would commit a crime. Um, and we interviewed Ali Land, um, mm. author of "Good Me, Bad Me," and if if you've read it, it's cracking. I love it. Yeah. And that's so about good. a mother. Yeah. And the idea that a mother would harm their children, or a mother would be involved in a crime, is it seems really you know it's such mm. difficult concept for people to get their heads around.
0: But that's probably because they're being portrayed in this way where they're demonised. Well, it's, so it's like, the Madonna
1: Hall complex, yeah, isn't it? It is you absolutely. Know?
0: Yeah, what, oh. a fa- what a fascinating angle to write, and like it must, it must have felt like quite a kind of um, what a fun thing to kind of delve into, and like
2: and it was fun. It was also, I mean, it was hard reading. Sometimes there were things in the in the um, sources that I didn't put in the book because they were unbelievable. So, for example, one of the reporters I read his book. He said, and I can't find any other evidence to back this up, that when he he used to listen on the police scanner to hear what was going on and he he heard that there was um, two children missing and he drove to Alice Crimin's house and before they knew that the children were dead before they'd found the bodies he overheard one of the policemen say to another one "Um, the bitch did it (sighs) there was no crime there was no it there was two children missing and his focus was on this woman who didn't look right and didn't behave right mm.
0: <laughs>
2: but i didn't put that in the book because oh. i thought that is it, unbelievable how did
0: you look at that and just not be furious <laughs> I, I was i was furious
2: when i was writing lots of people have said to me the book made them really really angry mm-hmm. and um i've kind of lost a lot of that anger because i've been you know obviously writing it for such a long time but um I'm really glad that it evokes that response. I think it should evoke that response. Absolutely.
1: And obviously, yours is a a fictionalised account. Mm. How much responsibility did you feel to stick to the facts and how much kind of creative licence did you feel that you could take?
2: Um, I stuck to the facts as much as I could. So the dates are the same, Uh, the dates of the crimes, the ages of the children and the sexes of the children. Um, The facts of Ruth Alice's life are fairly similar in that she'd recently separated from her husband. As far as I could tell, it was her choice. Um, her lifestyle, she drank, she had sex, she had affairs with married men, she had affairs with multiple men at the same time, um, she had men stay over in, in the apartment before the children were killed. Those are things that I that I put in the book. I think where I did um, move away from the facts was, was Basically, just to make it a better story. So, in real life, it took two or three years for her to come to trial, and she had three trials altogether. Um, I think there was a there was a mistrial, and there was a, an appeal. So, there were three trials before she was finally convicted. And in my original draft, I had this: I had the three years, I had the three trials. <laughs> my my agent said, "This is it's just repetitive, and it is repetitive." Um, must have been hell for her to go through. But as a reader. What you want is a is a resolution but i certainly felt a responsibility to um you know somebody killed those children i i felt a responsibility to not dwell on the kind of the gory nature of the deaths or to talk about the murders themselves in too much detail or to kind of linger on descriptions of the bodies um i think there's a lot of books around at the moment or a lot of books that have been around for several years where you get lots of very vivid descriptions, usually of female bodies, which are quite objectified. And you see it on TV as well. And I, that's not the kind of book I want to write. I'm more interested in the psychology behind um, A, people who kill, and B, the kind of people who are suspected of killing.
0: And how did you... So it must have been quite easy, not necessarily easy, but quite like having the angle of writing um, Ruth's character with that kind of, like, the sort of defiant female attitude mm. but then how did you find writing the like the detective and who mm. you know and and this um journalist who mm. kind of becomes a bit a little bit obsessed with her like mm. how do you like they're both really interesting angles aren't they because it's kind of like the demonizing and then he obviously does, like fancies her basically how he was how was it writing them
2: so devlin the main detective he's not based on a real person he's a kind of composite of um of all the police officers who were involved in the case. And and reading the facts, some of them were good and objective and some of them were more subjective, like Devlin. He was uh, so much fun to write actually. Like the first scene when you meet him, he's eating meatballs and he's talking with his mouthful. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of I was just imagining him like, you know, bad teeth and all this gristle falling out and saliva and he's he's so convinced he's right. He's so arrogant and arrogance is I just can't stand arrogant people. Mm-hmm. I just had a lot of fun with him. Um I really, really loathed him and it was really fun to write him. Pete uh Pete Fonicky is um he's a kind of rookie reporter who's looking for his big break in his first job. Um he's been stuck writing, you know, traffic reports and, and sports fixtures for three years and he wants a really juicy crime to dig into and at first he toes the line with his editor and writes what he's told to write about Ruth Malone. And then, as you said, he becomes more obsessed with her and he wants to dig into the case and he thinks he's going to be the one to ride in on his white charger and, and save her from the big bad men. <laughs> and it doesn't quite work out like that. And he was, yeah, he is an interesting character because I think he's the one that has the biggest narrative journey in the book. Yeah. He he goes from being this really um, naive, innocent guy to being... He, he goes through quite a transformation in the way that he sees Ruth and the way that he sees the world that he works in and i guess i wrote him that way because i wanted to show that most of the most of the judgments that were made about her the books that were written about her at the time and the news articles that were written were written by men and i wanted to show this kind of reflection of her through the eyes of someone you know again the 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 view that you get in the book it's not an accurate view in from his perspective he he's obsessed with her and he thinks that he's being positive towards her but again it's not a it's not a um an objective kind view it's still filtered through somebody else's eyes And i thought it was really important to to write that so i give her a voice but i thought it was important to show the difference between her actual voice and how she appears
0: yeah yeah and also quite important in terms of like you know with the, how the media portray lots of, like you know mm. that sort of idea that the media aren't are saying what's kind of going to sell them in newspapers. That's yeah. an, an important angle for modern day as well, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. there's a
2: bit where Pete's editor says to him, you know, you you need uh, sex money and you need a bad guy, and there's no money in this blue collar working class boring suburb, so you've got to play up the sex angle. So who's the sexy broad? And Ruth is obviously the one with the sex yeah. appeal. So that's the that's the angle they go for, and reading the articles at the time, I think I think that's the article they did go for. Yeah. And those three things. I've never been a journalist, but you know, I've read the tabloids. I've read accounts of um, Princess Diana's death, which is everywhere at the minute. Mm-hmm. Kate McCann, Amanda Knox, um, you know, other women who are in the media. It's all about sex. It's yeah. all about sex appeal. It,
1: it's inescapable. Isn't it, it is. I mean, you don't you know you don't even need to read the newspapers. You can't exactly in, engage with any type of media. And not come away with that
2: slight version of the. I'm still shocked. I don't know why I shouldn't be, but I'm still. You remember that headline? um, There was a photograph of Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon wearing skirts. Yeah. And the headline was Legs It. And I thought, what decade are we living in? This is
1: ridiculous. Yeah, and to look back at your story and to think, God, that's shocking. Yeah, exactly. What's What's changed? changed. Exactly. That's Um, what's worrying. We have a listener question, Okay, very exciting. Uh, we, we, that um, is we exciting. Asked question, we asked our listeners. Um, this one is from Tamsin. Hi, Tamsin. Um, <laughs> Tamsin would like to know whether you knew how the plot was going to unfold all along, or whether new twists and turns revealed themselves to you as you wrote. Now, I know, obviously, it is based on a true story, when yep. you sort of knew the ending, but I think that's a really interesting question, kind of, when you're doing a factual, base, a book based on factual events, can it still surprise you can it still yeah. twist and turn and
2: um i think that's a really good question yeah the answer is i knew the ending so i wrote the final chapter very early on and weirdly i'm doing that with my second book as well i've i've written the final i've written the ending although i haven't <laughs> i've written the beginning and the ending there's a lot to go in the middle <laughs> um But yes, uh, it absolutely surprised me. I didn't know what Pete was going to be like. I didn't really know how obsessed he was going to become with Ruth. There's lots of minor characters that I didn't know about until I was writing. Ruth, at one point um, during the trial, is horribly betrayed by this man she's had a relationship with. I didn't know quite how that was going to go. I didn't know... I didn't... There's certain things about Devlin that I didn't know. I think at the beginning Devlin was quite a black and white, I've got to get a result, this woman's bad news kind of guy. But he actually becomes quite obsessed with Ruth. And that's something that I didn't know until I started thinking about him more. So yeah, it really surprised me. And I think when your writing's going well, and it's surprising you as the writer, that's when you know it's going to be interesting to the reader. If you're bored by it, your reader's going to be bored.
0: Brain, I was that's... not bored. There was not one minute that I was bored. Oh my god! And that, you. When you betrayal, I was like, "You what?" I know. I know. Oh my god! Uh, I mean, and my that... mum was like, "What's wrong?" <laughs> that happened. Yeah. Oh my god! What a bastard. Yep. Oh my god. Um. Well, so and we have another another um, listener question as well. Um, Thank so, you, listeners. This is great, isn't it's it? Great. Well, we're delighted too. This one's from Kate. Yes. Hi, Kate. <laughs> Hi, Kate. So we um we. Yeah, so she would like to know kind of how, how long it took to write and how, um, whether like any, sorry, why can't I get my words out? Um, <laughs> well, She'd like, like to know about any obstacles you had to come in your journey to be published.
2: God, uh, wow, I could talk about this for about an hour. So <laughs> I started writing um, in July 2010 and I finished my first draft in about, I think it was roughly four years later. So it took four years to get to a first draft. Then I got an agent and we worked on it for about another year and a half. And then I got a publisher and we worked on it for another year. So altogether it took just over six years from start to finish. Obstacles. Um, (laughs) I was working full time through the the whole thing. I gave up work about two weeks before a publication date. So that was uh, pretty, yeah, it was pretty crazy sometimes. Um, And I suppose I had all the obstacles that most writers have especially debut writers is this interesting is it actually a story is it is it enough to make a book why am i writing this will people read it if they don't read it do i care you know am i going to keep going i didn't i didn't expect to get an agent i didn't expect to get published who is your
0: agent is it joe amazing yeah i've I've kind of always wanted her to be my agent i met her once and she was lovely she is lovely although she doesn't publish what i write
2: She's, um, you know, I, I gave her the book in such a raw, oh God, when I look back on it, I'm just like, oh, honestly, it was like giving her a, a, a chicken with its head cut off and, and she was expecting a roast dinner and, and I was, and I look back and think, bloody hell, she had so much faith in me and we spent a year and a half working on it together and I was lucky because when she took me on, she just set up on her own. And that's one of the reasons that I went with her because I thought she's gonna have a bit more time because she doesn't have so many clients Since I went with her. She's I don't know She's got like seven times the number of clients she had when I went with her So I realize now she's gonna have less time to do that kind of thing, but I learned a hell of a lot from her and then um, When I got a publisher I I went through the whole thing again with my British and American publishers at the same time I guess that's it wasn't an obstacle, but it was tough. I had a, a, I can't even remember how long the book is now, about a 95,000-word manuscript, and I had, you know, one copy with my British editor's notations and one copy with my American editor's. Wow. <laughs> sometimes they didn't quite sync. Sometimes they didn't sync with what I was thinking. Some... Did you
0: have to apply both of those things to the same manuscript? Yep. Or to two conversions?
2: It was, no, I had one. I had to produce one, one version. from all yeah. of those
0: notes. Please, oh my and then God. you're
1: trying to please everyone else. That's tough. Yeah.
2: Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I had deadlines. <laughs> and I had a day job. Oh, my God. You <laughs> must have, what,
0: what, what did you do to kind of... Celebrate. How, yeah. How, <laughs> how, did, you, really how did you, you stay... Well, yeah, that, oh. that's <laughs> important. But how did you kind of like... I mean, I suppose you have to be motivated because you've got the deadlines and you you can't yeah. not work. But like, you must have been... Were you just coming over from work and then working all evening? Or did you get through the mornings? Or no, I... Um, both...
2: I would work sort of. I, I hate early mornings, so I would work like ten to six, and then I would stay in the office for three or four hours every night. And sometimes I would go home and work in bed. And I, sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and work. Oh my god! <laughs> it was um, yeah. It was it was really tough. I was nominated for this um, for this thing in America. The the book. I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> book Expo America, B E A. Um, and I got, I basically got up, got onto the um, authors panel, which is a, a six debut authors, can be fiction, non-fiction, um, British and American. And I was one of two British people, and the other one wrote non-fiction. So it was a massive accolade. But we had to have um, proofs that were good enough to give out at Book Expo America about ten months before publication. Oh, wow. So we did an enormous amount of work for that and then that was over and then I had to start working on the next draft so I remember coming home on the plane thankfully I can't sleep on planes mm-hmm. hadn't slept for about 24 hours and I just sat up all night on the plane the stewardess was going who do you work for they're absolute bastards yeah. <laughs> I was like, I kind of work for myself yeah. <laughs> yeah. and
0: obviously you want it to be perfect like, exactly you know, that's the thing and that has to just a lot of coffee that... lots of coffee
2: and also you know I've been writing since I was 10 years old. I. I've wanted this for more than thirty years, and okay. when someone gives it to you, you're like it's got it's got to be the best it can be this is this has to be the most important thing in my life for the next year or two, and you know whatever I have to do to make it work, I guess it's like having a kid you know I don't have children, but you go through months and months and months of sleepless nights, mm-hmm. <laughs> you make sacrifices you sit on planes eating terrible food in order to soothe it it, it was like that it was like i've i've got to prioritize this and i I feel really lucky because by the end of it i've got something that i'm i could not be more proud of it i yes. never thought i'd get to that point and you should be proud of it you, it's, it's
1: absolutely incredible so all the work all is <laughs> so worthwhile
0: we are, we're, yeah, we're can we, can So I really we, want to ask We can't ask one more question We've got to go I okay. love um, <laughs> well, Damn
1: Anna, it. Um, Anna thank you so much for joining us It's been such a pleasure Thank you so
2: you much for having me Thanks.
0: Thanks Thank you so much Sorry I'm so gutted It's over <laughs> The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards Come say hey at the-riffraff.com